Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32. We didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple in our until our 29th year of marriage. And we have an amazing 25-year-old daughter who's doing fantastic. And I am really glad to have our guest today because one of the issues that keeps coming up in the two support groups that I facilitate for neurotypical or non-autistic partners is the issue of sexual and physical intimacy and the challenges that a lot of couples are having. So today I have Larry Siegel on the Neurodiverse Love podcast, and he is a clinical sexologist and a certified sexuality educator. So welcome, Larry. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure, Mona. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm wondering if we can start with you sharing just a little bit with our listeners about the work that you do with couples and with therapists. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've been I've been doing this work for going on 35 years now. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm still trying to figure out what this stuff is all about. <laughs> I uh, think we all are, Larry. <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's probably the only thing that sort of keeps me uh, uh, sort of focused is that realizing that whenever I think I know what I'm talking about, something comes up to tell me, maybe not. Uh, so <laughs> it's you. constantly this, this, this process of, of discovering and figuring it out. Uh, I have been a uh, sexuality educator uh, for, again, going on 35 years. Um, I have been a therapist in private practice for a number of those years. Uh, I am also a supervisor for those who are coming into the field and wanting to get uh, uh, their certification as sexuality educators as well. Um, most of my time now is really focused on training other therapists, doing education, and figure can have, you know, I have a greater impact if I'm helping people who are helping the people who need help. Absolutely. Because I've, I've come to realize, you know, one of, one of my professional epiphanies was that as much as people need help, and as much as I do enjoy helping people. The reality is that the people who are helping people need more help than the people they're helping, especially in the areas of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, one of the reasons that I've been very open about that part <clears throat> of my marriage and my relationship is because I see so many people struggling in neurodiverse relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it doesn't matter what relationship you're in. I think lots of folks are having challenges in this area, whether it's due to something that happened in their past, whether it's, you know, the way they were brought up, or, you know, we don't get sex education in school, we get somebody mm -hmm. telling us not to have sex, you know, right? So. Exactly. <laughs> So, so Larry, I really want to start kind of broad and then go deeper because I know one of the challenges that a lot of the folks that I'm meeting are experiencing is literally not having a sex life. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
And that causes so much stress. Many of the women talk about, you know, low self-worth, wondering, you know, their body changes, if that's the reason. And when they find out they're in a neurodiverse relationship, they start thinking other things. So I was wondering if you could maybe share with our audience some tools or strategies that you might think would be helpful for neurodiverse couples who were dealing with this challenge that in the beginning they had a decent or maybe even a good sex life, but then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as life got more stressful, things started to change and not necessarily for the better. Yeah, see, that's that's a that's a big part of of that uh, question, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, I think statistically, fifty uh, percent of you know what we would identify as neurodivergent couples complain of not having any sex whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, let me let me put this in here before I, I go any further, because I want to be very clear that everything that we can talk about, and we can talk for weeks about this, <laughs> uh, uh, this, this particular topic, but everything that we can talk about with neurodivergent couples are the same issues as we are generally seeing in what's called neurotypical couples. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are couples issues, regardless mm-hmm. of, you know, what brought them to that point. So when we look at things like no uh, sex in the relationship or uh, an imbalance in sexual desire among the, uh, uh, the, the partners, these are things that are common to all relationships. So, you know, you, you already asked a very, very important question that when we talk about those that are complaining about not having uh, uh, any sex or sexual activity in the relationship, when did that start? Mm-hmm. What changed? Right? That's an important thing to be able to identify, because as you know, uh, for a lot of neuroatypical people, and it's, it's a huge umbrella of a term but right. for so many, uh, particularly those that are on the autism spectrum, there's that masking or camouflaging behavior mm-hmm. that often is really, um, I think, rooted in sexual activity. So they, they, you know, the partner may start out being highly sexual, uh, even, even sexually dominant. Mm-hmm. But there is a point that I think most couples will say things changed. Yeah. Um, it, it oftentimes, from what I've uh, uh, seen and, and reading and heard about from other people, it could be that point in the relationship where the neuroatypical partner feels safe mm-hmm. and comfortable, like, okay, this is going to be the one. And then all of a sudden, they're maybe even hypersexual behavior may go down to zero yep. or sometimes I think what's also very common is if the, uh, uh, especially the neurotypical partner is experiencing a very emotional event, right? whether it's the death of a parent or loss of a job, they are now feeling very emotionally needy. They are wanting that from that atypical partner. And that can often be when they sort of shut the door, as it were. So there's a lot of things that can change. 
uh, in that relationship. But I think what's really, really important is once the partner and it's and again, I don't know if this is your experience or not, but it's you know, I find it's usually the neurotypical partner that is the one identifying the no sex yes. and identifying that it is a problem. So yes. I think one of the biggest things is that neurotypical partner has to be able to think about this, manage their feelings around this, and approach their neuroatypical partner from a place more of inviting, mm -hmm. of, hey, I noticed, rather than being critical, mm -hmm. which is often uh, uh, the place that a lot of people, regardless of their uh, uh, neurology, neuro, yeah. neuro, neurology or their development, that's something that a lot of people uh, do struggle with in their relationships. So yeah. rather than, you know, you never want to do this anymore or the, the accusations and the finger po pointing, but rather maybe once you realize that this is what's happening, approach uh, uh, the partner from the, you know, I, I miss being close to you. Uh, mm -hmm. I enjoy holding you and we haven't done that in a long time. Make it more inviting than critical. I and, couldn't agree more. Yes. And, and let me also say that what, what really also I think is an important aspect of that is because there's a, a an interchange, if you will, or a, a relationship in the relationship between the dynamics. And I'll just say outside of the bedroom and mm -hmm. the dynamics inside of the bedroom mm -hmm. that, you know, sometimes because they're not getting other needs met, mm -hmm. the neurotypical partner may be developing these angers and resentment uh, in the other areas of the relationship. And then sex becomes a casualty. Mm -hmm. And I think this is true of all relationships, right? This yes. is a very, very common thing. You know, I've often said to other sex therapists in training them that we need to be aware of the difference between a sexual problem and a sexualized problem where sex mm -hmm. is the casualty. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a great, great sex therapist and marriage and family therapist uh, named Barry McCarthy, who uh, several years ago made just one of my favorite uh, observations and characterizations. And he mm -hmm. said that when the non-sexual parts of the relationship are going well, right, and things are, they're mm -hmm. enjoying each other and they're getting along great, then sex really only represents maybe about 25% of that total relationship. But yeah. when the sex is sort of the the lightning rod, if you will, for the angers and the resentment, and the sex is not good, it seems to now represent like 75% of the relationship. Yeah. So we have to look at that connection between out of the bedroom, in the bedroom dynamics, and understand how they are connected. Because, you know, one of the things that I think neuroatypical individuals don't do very well is what we might call metacognition or even true empathy mm -hmm. right? to be able to think about and really appreciate what their partner might be going through. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, and that's, Larry, I couldn't have said it better. I think that's an issue that a lot of folks are dealing with who are attending the support groups that I facilitate. Um, it's hard, they say, for their partner to understand how important the physical and sexual intimacy is to the whole of the relationship because their neurodivergent or autistic partner doesn't need sex or the physical intimacy the same way that the neurotypical partner is. So I think having that conversation is really important and having it in a kind, compassionate way where you're giving your partner grace and not being critical and judgmental is mm -hmm. critical. Now, for those folks that can't have that conversation in a very nice, kind, compassionate way, I would suggest a, you know, a therapist who's, who's very familiar with neurodiversity. And if sex is your main concern or main issue, you know, somebody who understands that too in the, through the neurodiverse lens. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I will tell you one of the other things that I hear repeatedly is that when folks do start going for counseling, and they do start having conversation about this, they may find that there's some sensory sensitivities that their partner has, the neurodivergent partner, that they never shared before, oftentimes mm -hmm. because they never knew about it. They right. just knew, you know, they didn't like kissing all that much or they always wore a condom because they didn't like the fluids or they mm -hmm. always wanted to take a shower before or after or whatever, but they never connected it to being autistic. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and the sensory t sensitivity issues? Sure, sure. Now, you know, as sort of a way of moving into that, let me let me just also address this idea of communication about some Great. of these things, because we know that uh, in neurodivergent relationships, we have two people that come from completely different uh, abilities and understandings of communication. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it's easy to talk about how uh, neuroatypical or, or individuals on the spectrum uh, basically often miss um, subtle verbal cues, often miss nonverbal cues. There's often a mismatch of those nonverbal cues. But I also really need to point out that for a majority of people who might be identified as neurotypical, yeah, direct communication, especially about sexual uh, uh, and erotic needs is really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. So for the vast majority of all people, this is a difficult thing for them. Yes. So, you know, I think we need to start with that very basic uh, uh, kind of thing before we can even get to understanding or trying to find some of those sensory type of things. Um, I think it's also important for uh, people in their relationships to have some understanding of their partner's past history. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, people on the spectrum, a lot of atypical partners uh, have a history of abuse, of trauma, of one way or another uh, learning about sex in connection to shame. Mm -hmm. So that's something that also the 
the more neurotypical partner has to be aware of as well, but also work through their own blocks and difficulties and where they have similar issues. Yeah, that I agree. Reconcile. Yeah, I agree. And I know for um, a lot of folks that I've had the opportunity to talk to or work with, they have shared with me that um, this is the neurodivergent partner sharing this, that they may not have had many or any relationships prior to the relationship they're in now. Mm -hmm. So they are literally learning everything with their current partner. And maybe that's never come up in conversation until they're in therapy, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's Mm -hmm. another issue. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Yeah. Sure, sure. Now, you know, with some of the the sensory issues, um, again, there's such diversity in neurodiversity that in some cases, the sensory triggers may cause an oversensitivity. In some mm-hmm. cases, the sensory triggers may cause an under sensitivity. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, I, I had read a study, I don't remember where it was, but it uh, basically said that 80% of neuroatypical partners report that certain sounds, smells, touch, taste might cause them to experience one of these sensitivities. And either one, hypersensitive or hyposensitive, can mm-hmm. still get them feeling overwhelmed and shut down. Yep. Right? And trigger some of that shame. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, you'll hear people say, I love very, very tight hugs, or I love weighted blankets, or I can't mm-hmm. stand being touched soft. But, you know, right. there's some folks that are into BDSM. And um, also they're into that because there's rules and it's a little bit more clear. And then you've mm-hmm. got folks who are um, all over the spectrum as far as their sexuality. Some Absolutely. are, you know, pansexual. Some are uh they say they are queer. Some are, you know, there's asexual folks Mm -hmm. all over. And I don't think Larry, that when we get into relationships, period, we have these clear conversations with our partner and maybe your sexual desires change over time. You're not the same person at the beginning of the relationship that you are as you grow and and you mature. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and by the way, some of those uh, uh, sensitivities to different types of sensory triggers, um, again, they could be any way from, well, I don't like it when he uses his fingertips. Mm -hmm. I like to feel the pressure of his whole hand. Mm -hmm. Um, It may be a certain part of the hand. And of course, you know, the light touch versus firm touch, the speed, the timing of the contact, textures. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and it come, when it comes to body and body fluids, especially if mm-hmm. there is some, some shame around that, you know, wetness, even from your own body, you know, mm-hmm. even coming into contact with your own bodily fluids can really be a shutdown and, and an overwhelming sensation. Yeah. And for both, and I, I've seen this more, to be honest with you, with uh, uh, neurodiverse women than mm-hmm. I have with men. But again, that's just in terms of my experience, I'm not sure how it is out there uh, uh, in the whole world, but even one's own orgasm and the sensations associated with that can be a trigger. 
mm-hmm. uh, go, going back to some of the sexual changes. Right? Mm-hmm. I have heard women uh, on the spectrum in that beginning, again, when in the masking, in the camouflage, when they're sort of wanting this relationship to happen, so they're putting on a really good front. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard women being multi-orgasmic. Mm-hmm. early on in their relationship and their partner would say yeah early on it's like you never didn't want to have sex and you would have eight nine ten orgasms in a row but then when it gets to that sort of shutdown point there seems to be a change where these women now all of a sudden may be reacting to their own orgasms differently and they may go from having you know eight orgasms to now having one and then that's it we're done and 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 shut down to their own pleasure and why do you think that is or what can a partner do to you know address that in a kind and compassionate way any thoughts on that yeah i mean it it really (laughs) i always have to qualify conversations people have with me Mm -hmm. uh very often the answer I give to a question is it depends. Sure. sure. And it's not a cop out as, as you know, no, it's just I know. One, we have to really look at it in the context of that relationship. Uh, sometimes again, if it's, let's say uh, a female partner uh, who is the uh, neurodiverse uh, partner, then let's say they have their orgasm and now they're sort of leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, hopping off or, you know, I said, okay, that's it. I came to, to have the partner gently and, and as kindly and as in the moment as possible, you know, keep them there. No, 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 don't go. Don't go. Not yet. Not yet. Oh, let's stay here. This feels really good. And that other partner needs to also learn to navigate the other partner's pleasure. If, I see that my partner is having an orgasm and then wants to get out of there, then you know what? Maybe I will stop thrusting. Maybe I will stop, you know, at least to them, you know, having sex and just help teach them to safely, without expectation, without judgment, just be there in that feeling and maybe allow another sort of wave of sort of erotic feelings and pleasure to be able to rise up again. Because mm-hmm. part of that, that, that sensory or that sensitivity that a lot of neuroatypicals uh, have also I think is related to our sexual response. Because mm-hmm. after an orgasm, our body goes through a period of readjustment trying mm-hmm. to move back to normal, even in women that do have multiple orgasms. Mm-hmm. It may be a very brief, maybe a very fleeting moment, but it could be for a lot of, especially neuroatypical women, in that moment after the orgasm, in that sort of transition inside their body, there's something that just may get triggered and again, close the door. Yeah. So help yeah. teach them to keep it open a little more. Yeah, and that totally, totally makes sense. And then with the male partners, having been with several um, neurodivergent men, I see a whole spectrum. 
I have seen um, some of my partners who are very, very sexual to the point that, you know, they have more knowledge about a woman's body than the woman. Mm-hmm. I've seen men who are um, extremely challenged, at least this is what they communicated with intimacy, you know, couldn't open their eyes during sex. That was too much intimacy, um, yeah. almost a robotic way of having sex. Literally mm-hmm. every single time it's the same position. It's the same amount right. of time. It always has to be in the bed, you know, exactly. Exactly. Um, those yep. things. And then I've also seen um, some of the men that are very connected to their own bodies and masturbate multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm wondering, and maybe you can answer this or we can have a discussion about this, is um, I, I also wonder if some of this is about levels of anxiety and um, whether they are maybe on the verge of, you know, burnout or overwhelmed for the day, their ability to connect, but also the masturbation and porn, which we'll get into a little bit later, can help with reducing anxiety and stress. So you can pick which issue you want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I put a lot out there. So yeah, 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 so you go ahead, start with wherever you want to start. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Let me start by saying that for particularly, uh, you know, neuroatypical individuals, again, neuroatypical, neurodivergent, you know, these terms that we use are so broad and there's so much overlap, Yes. you know, between those members of that group, if you will, you know, those labels that we use for a lot of neuroatypicals, we're talking about having an element of social anxiety. There are similarities to obsessive compulsive disorder. There are similarities to uh, people that experience uh, uh, things with ADD or ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, there are phobic uh, and and not just phobic, but actually a term that my brother and I have been using for many many years, uh, selective anality. Um, mm. You know what that is that? Of, you know, like Freud talked about anal retention, which is what we tend to refer to as OCD. Mm-hmm. But some of these phobias and some of the OCD may be very very specific. Like they may have this reaction to let's say the partner's behavior, but not their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, thing, one thing that I heard from uh, a couple is that, uh, uh, and this was from the, the, the female was the neurodivergent and the male was the quote neurotypical. And he was saying one of the things that just got so incredibly frustrating for him was every time he touched an article of clothing, maybe he took it out of his drawer and decided, uh, maybe I'll put it this on later put it on his bed. But anytime she saw an article of his clothing out, it immediately goes into the hamper. Hmm. Everything he touches, everything, if it touched his body, she had almost this phobia that it has to be washed. It's dirty. Yet looking under her side of the bed, she's got all her clothes stuffed under there. And (laughs) okay. So, so I would call that selective anality. So it's sort of like this, this selective OCD. And it's okay. often, you know, focused on maybe the partner's behavior and not theirs. Gotcha. And I think some of that speaks to how a lot of neuroatypical people 
kind of use sex and especially uh, um, whether it's partnered sex, that robotic, uh, always the same way, uh, it's the same thing every time. A lot of this, like uh, obsessive and compulsive behavior, is about control. Mm. And that control is about reducing anxiety. Mm -hmm. A lot of their sexual behavior could be ritualistic or repetitive because mm -hmm. that need for familiarity, that need to be able to uh, predict and expect is very important to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to that idea of that sort of lack of, of the, you know, what we call metacognition, there's a, a tendency to get into the familiar patterns. And I'm doing this because this is what I'm comfortable doing, not doing what you want me to do. Mm -hmm. So I think some of these issues are underlying, you know, some of those kinds of behaviors. And I with, couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. and, and if I could say with masturbation yeah. and where this does relate even to uh, uh, the porn aspect of it, uh, it's never the porn. Mm -hmm. right? It's never about porn. Uh, porn is just an easy excuse. But when you talk about that sort of isolated, uh, um, the alone behavior, there's a lot of things that uh, can be connected to that. First and foremost, it's clean. Mm -hmm. right? Porn is mm -hmm. clean. Yep. Right. There's nobody, yep. nobody gets dirty. Nobody has bad breath. Nobody's uh, genitals have a funky smell to them. Nothing mm -hmm. feels weird. So it's really a nice, clean world to be sexual. Yes. It also gives the person total control. Yes. Control of what they're doing, turning it on, turning it off at will. Right. So it, it's mm -hmm. a, that's an important aspect of that as well. Um, there's no judgment in masturbation or porn. Well, no, no, I take that back. There can, there's often a guilt, especially when there's a religious and uh, sex negative uh, way of growing up and learning that the person has had. They could be judging themselves even while they're sure. doing it. But for the most part, you know, the, the masturbation, in, including with porn, doesn't have that judgment associated with it. Um, right. It's they don't have to feel self-conscious mm -hmm. while they're doing it, and it removes one of the biggest things that I think uh, neuroatypical individuals have when it comes to any type of sexual activity with a partner: performance anxiety. Yes. Oh, and, so and true. While, and while that is common among most people sexually, I think it's kind of taken up a notch with a lot of neurodivergent people. Larry, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think everything that you shared there is going to be so helpful to so many of my listeners, because I can't tell you, you know, every, every month I get new people joining the support group and I can't tell you how many, and it's mostly women are just absolutely devastated <clears throat> because they have found out their partner is oftentimes addicted to porn they have found out that they are literally in the next room you know mm -hmm. looking at porn masturbating mm -hmm. and 
you know, they are interested in having sex with their partner and their partner does not come to them. And maybe they haven't had sex for six months, a year, two years or longer. And mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. devastating. Right. And the way in which you explained that is going to be so enlightening and helpful because I think everything that you said is the absolute truth. And if we were to do an interview of a hundred neurodivergent men, specifically men on the spectrum, and ask them what it is that porn gives them and why they're engaged in porn when their partner's in the next room, I'll bet you everything that you said would be their responses. So that is so helpful, Larry. Oh, I'm so Thank glad. You. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. And if yeah. I can, let me add to yeah. that then, that, you know, one thing that I, I've been telling people for years just across the board is, you know, we should never be threatened by our partner's fantasies, by our mm-hmm. partner's self-pleasuring. If your partner is looking at porn and uh, um, masturbating to porn, it doesn't mean they don't like you or they're not turned on by you. So what I think is a challenge for a lot of people is to not look at porn as their enemy, but try to incorporate it as a partner in that relationship. If they can uh, uh, start watching together um, incorporated into their sexual activity. It could be the foreplay uh, mm-hmm. that that person really does need to allow them to be sexual with their partner. Um, they need to be talking about uh, if they see their partner is watching and spending a lot of time with porn, let's have a conversation about that without criticism, without judgment, without getting upset and hurt. Uh, but to 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 find out what it is about that that turns them on and yeah. why. Yeah, I think that that is so important. And I think, you know, in any relationship, I think we have fantasies that we're afraid to share with our partners because we're mm-hmm. afraid of rejection or we're afraid that they're going to not understand why we would have this fantasy. But I really like that idea. I think that, um, you know, a lot of people are afraid, well, especially females, are afraid of porn, you know, taking over in their relationship. And it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, right. you're absolutely right. right. You're absolutely right. But those folks that are addicted to porn, there are therapists, there are counselors out there that can help with that. Because I know some people do think of it as a betrayal, especially when they haven't had sex with their partner for ages. And they're they're involved in uh, masturbating in a lot of porn or the webcam or whatever before you move on I just want yeah, yeah. to need to throw this in because this Please. is one of the soapboxes I carry around with me yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I am I am I do not ascribe to the notion of porn addiction or sex addiction uh, I think what people are calling porn addiction is really just a uh, it's either a way of trying to resolve their own uh, what we call uh, values behavior conflict or religious guilt, which underlies a lot of that. And it's, again, for the reasons that I already mentioned, you know, the safety uh, and the, the, the alone and the, the sort of comfort that that brings. But there's also a very basic behavioral conditioning aspect underlying what most people call, por- you know, addicted to porn. They just get just so used to that mm. connection or that association between being alone 
and their erotic feelings or orgasm yeah. and gratifying themselves. So it becomes just something they're so used to. Yeah. Right? Rather than, I think, pathologizing it as, you know, this addiction. And again, I don't use that. Term. I've written a number of book chapters specifically uh, <laughs> addressing that and why I don't think it's a valid concept. And I think what you just described, what you what you put into that is part of the crux of of that issue, that it's not so much what we call porn addiction. It's not so much what that partner is doing, but how the other partner is reacting to it and responding yeah. to it. And that's where the work is. Yes. You know, working on not taking everything personally, mm -hmm. right? You know, and, and I know that's easier said than done, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's to, to try to re, I think, readjust the way the person looks at porn and, mm -hmm. you know, to understand that no relationship, right? I don't care what kind of relationship we're talking about. There's no such thing as one partner that can satisfy all of the needs and desires of another. And mm. part of learning how to have a healthy relationship and establishing this good communication is to understand that, you know what, there are things that I can do and share with my partner. And there are things that I can't do and share with my partner. There are things my partner wants to do and share with me. There are things that they don't want to do and share with me. And we need to find that sort of realistic level of expectation of our partners in order yeah. to really kind of find that, that place where we can exist comfortably and uh, uh, supporting each other. Yeah, I think, Larry, I think that's a really good point. And I mean, you know, you can find the terms sexual addiction and porn addiction all over social yes. media. And I, yeah, it does. And I love how you said that. And it's the first time I've ever talked to anybody who described it that way, because I think um, the issue is when porn or masturbation, solo masturbation replaces a healthy sex life, that's where the challenge begins for right. the folks that I am, you know, getting to know and working with. The challenge is, and, and maybe we can talk to this, finding a therapist or a counselor who understands neurodiversity and understands that looking back at when things started to change, maybe the triggers or the mm -hmm. reason for the changes are very different in a neurodiverse couple than in a neurotypical couple. And I'll give you an example. So in a neurotypical couple, um, let's just say the husband is working, you know, 70 hours a week, he's exhausted. And as much as he's turned on by his partner, he's exhausted and cannot function like he could before he was working 70 hours a week or, or just doesn't have the energy, falls asleep when mm -hmm, he gets home. Mm -hmm. Then you're talking about the neurodiverse couple where we talked about this earlier, the partner, the neurodivergent partner might have been masking, might have been camouflaging, might have been putting on his or her best hat for the sake of the relationship and then realizes I don't have to do or thinks I don't have to do that anymore without discussing it with their partner. 
And then their sex life try, starts to change sometimes overnight or sometimes after a child is born and that's the extra stress. Right, right. And so how couples can begin to have this conversation before it gets to a crisis is kind of what I would love to talk to you about. And I know we've talked in the general about, you know, in a compassionate, kind, <clears throat> non-judgmental way, but I'm wondering when that when that change in their physical intimacy and sexual intimacy is starting, what are some things that you could suggest? And I'm going to talk about the women because that's who I'm mm -hmm. mostly working with might be able to say, or what kind of therapist should they engage with so that they don't end up in a place where they haven't had sex for three years. Yeah. Um, that's wow. <laughs> Not, a, not certainly not an easy for... question. Exactly, <laughs> and that's that's really sort of the crux of of uh, so many of these issues. Um, one of the things that that certainly comes to my mind is, especially before it gets to a certain point, and uh, and this also speaks to you know how to look for a therapist. One of the things that I do encourage people to do is audition their therapist interview mm. their therapist mm -hmm. uh, too many people think that because i made an appointment with you and i came to talk to you that you have to i have to stay with you this is this is what we have to do and people really need to you know experience that therapist and make a real decision if they think they can really work with that therapist, if they mm -hmm. really think that therapist can connect with them, can really understand them and can sort of help them where they are. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Another really difficult piece that, you know, is, is required to get a lot of this stuff started so that it doesn't become such a big problem is that the partner who's feeling betrayed you know, or all those negative feelings, they're feeling less than there's some, you know, whatever the negative feelings that they're having about their partners uh, of porn and masturbatory behavior might be, that partner has to try to work past the feeling of being a victim and really be able to honestly look at what they might be doing intentionally or unintentionally that may be contributing to this mm -hmm. dynamic because mm -hmm. that's that's one of the you know most therapists that deal with any type of uh, uh again if they call porn addiction if that comes up there's an immediate characterization of this relationship uh that i describe as simply the doghouse Mm. There is the person who's watching the porn is in the doghouse, and now they have to try to prove that the other person can trust them. And mm -hmm. meanwhile, and again, in this situation, and I, and I will qualify this by apologizing, and I really, really, really do not mean this to sound as sexist as it might, okay. but this is an issue that we see particularly difficult for women in that situation to be able to look at if they're feeling betrayed, if they're feeling victimized, then it, it's very hard for them to see how they may be contributing to this without feeling like they're being blamed for this situation. 
And it's very, very important that we're able to make that distinction between blaming them for what's going on and acknowledging where both have a responsibility, both have made a contribution to what's going on. Because a relationship, nobody exists in a vacuum in a relationship. So part of that real honesty is what can I do differently in this relationship? Yeah, that's not an easy thing. For both partners, absolutely. But we're, you know, I think the, the, the lead foot here is really on the, I think the lead foot is taken by the one who's feeling the betrayal. They're really setting the tone for how they're moving forward here. So I think starting with that idea of, wait a minute, let's, let me be willing to look at this before I just put all the blame on my partner for the porn, for the masturbation, for the disconnection. And yeah, I, think I think that can help prevent a lot of deep problems. Yeah, I think I think, Larry, there are going to be a lot of women who are going to say, um, I'm not taking any responsibility for this. I cannot look at myself. It's all his fault. So as, as a non-autistic neurotypical woman, mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. I'm going to talk this through with you because I think I know where you're coming from. So I know in my marriage I would scream at my husband, my ex-husband. I mm-hmm. would um, not call him names, but I would tell him in a very loud voice what I wanted. And I think I flooded him over mm-hmm. and over mm-hmm. and over again. And I think, um, you know, this wasn't our issue. We we actually had great sex until the end of our marriage. And I've said this before on the podcast. And I think all our therapists were like, what? Well, I think that was one of his... Um, special interests and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. quality physical touch was both of our love languages, one of our love languages. But anyway, I think the, the issue is if we are constantly, whether it's the man or the woman or somebody who's non-binary, if they are constantly berating and putting down and judging and screaming at their partner, we are not creating a safe environment for right. our partner. Okay. Right. So, right. so when we don't create a safe environment, I think it is very difficult to be physically or sexually intimate and feel like we can be safe in that realm of our relationship too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even though, Um, And I'm going to say the female partner in in this case might say, you know, I really want to be intimate with you. I want to have sex. Why are you, you know, using porn? Why are you by yourself when I'm in the next room? The way in which you say it and the way in which you are communicating at other times in the relationship, I think are critical. So is that kind of. That's exactly what I'm saying. In fact, let me (laughs) add on two, two points to that. Okay. Um, First of all, this, you know, this, this whole idea, I'll make the one point, the, the way that it is approached and part of this doghouse setup mm-hmm. is that, and again, very often why I was focusing on the female uh, part of that dynamic is very often what happens, even when you're saying, 
you know, maybe I'll say it nicely. What are you doing with that? Why do you prefer that? I'm right here. Why aren't you able to do that? It kind of sets up a perception in that partner's mind that this is mommy. Yes. Right? Now oh, there's mommy, yes. judgmental, scolding mommy. And one thing that I do like to remind women of is that we are biologically wired not to be attracted sexually to mommy. Mm -hmm. So if we're setting up that dynamic, then again, we can't be surprised when it's not getting better and it now doesn't resolve is, it. Yeah. So this is where I think, and I've recommended numerous times on the podcast, this is where I think a third party is really helpful. I think it would be yes. very, very, very difficult, if not almost impossible for a couple who's gotten to this point to resolve this on their own. And I, I mean, I mm -hmm. say that mm -hmm. with the deepest compassion and grace for folks who are struggling with this, please find a professional who can assist mm -hmm. you because I think the more you complain or the more hurt you are, the greater you're going to divide yourself from your partner. So I think in the beginning, there may be opportunities for having conversations. Okay, we haven't had sex for two months. And prior to whatever occurred, we were having sex every week. Can we sit down and talk? Are there ways in which a partner can tell another partner, these are the things that I really liked. These are the things I wish we would mm -hmm. do more of and not sound like they are judgmental or complaining. Are there any kind of soft starts that you would suggest or ways in which to do that? Yes, absolutely. And one, and let me let me just go back to you know I'll, I'll put in the other point that I was yeah. I was going to make before. Uh, if you can also ask yourself the question, mm -hmm. which is more important right now, being mm -hmm. right or making this work? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. that's kind of a good a guiding question that should kind of always be available to us. Yes, that's a big one. Yes, it point. really is. It really is. But it's an important one. It's so, yes. I mean, again, and I understand it's not easy, but these are the ways we have to start learning how to think differently about these things. So if we're looking at things that we can do, number one, as I said, what's difficult for most people, regardless of their you know, neurological status or identification, um, direct communication, mm -hmm. not hinting, not, you know, well, I'm turning my body to you and I'm kind of, you know, using this nonverbal body positioning to let you know I'm interested. It may not work. Right. Right. So that real direct communication is so important, both for what you want mm -hmm. and what you don't want. Now, yeah. a basic sort of uh, a communication standard that I would, I would venture to say you've also uh, probably used in a lot of your work is these are the kinds of conversations to talk about as directly as possible, things that we like, things that we don't like, but never do it in bed. Yes. Always out of the bedroom in yes. a safe place where you can be non-judgmental and non-critical. Um, 
where part of that conversation, you know, as I'm telling you what I would like and what I would like with you, I'm also going to need to be giving you permission to say no. Mm-hmm. Right? That's got to be just really as important. important. Yeah. Yes. Right. I think sometimes it's good to rehearse, to practice. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, what would, you know, this is, this is, you know, if I were to ask you about this, maybe I would ask you like this and actually say it, actually do it. And the more you can sort of share that back and forth. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the more safe they might feel opening up a little bit more. Um, we need to assure our partner, if we're going to be talking in this way, that whatever they say they like or whatever they say they don't like, we will hear them and respect their wishes. And not judge them. And not judge them. And let me say this for yeah. the guys <laughs> especially, uh, don't pout. Yeah. Well, guys like to pout. (laughs) Well, women, women like to sound like they are shocked or, you know, aghast that, Uh you know, their partner would like them to, you know, get some toys or, or um, wear certain lingerie. And Mm -hmm. what you said Mm -hmm. earlier, don't take it personal i think we right. all have I, I can't say we all there are a lot of folks who have fantasies they have desires because it's not part of marriage 101 or relationship 101 how to talk to your partner about those things mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. if we if we both approach each other from a place of kindness and compassion and a non-judgmental attitude which, which is social work 101 but we're not right. taught it in our relationships I think we can feel comfortable or more comfortable asking for what we might want or need. And I think, Larry, and and I would love your thoughts on this, when um, our partner says, I'm not comfortable with that, that that doesn't mean ever. Um, That doesn't mean it's a totally closed door. And there's, there's probably an opportunity to bring it up in the future, but it might not be that year, you know, it might not be next week, you know, because I think, I think sometimes there can be a hyper-focus. Okay. She said no now, but she said the door is not closed forever. I'm going to bring it up every month for the next year. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's got to be kind of a, a respect for, you know, don't keep bringing that up. Because that was something that happened with um, me in my marriage. And something kept continually being discussed. And it really, really hurt me. It, it bothered me immensely. And um, finally, I said yes, <laughs> because it kept happening over and over again. I figured, okay, fine, I'll do it. And um, I'm not sure I would have said yes earlier I said yes to save the relationship Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of the women that come to my groups will say yes to things because they're trying they're trying to hold on to the hope that the relationship can continue and they may not really want to say yes then they'll say yes if things get more stable they'll say yes if other things in the relationship improve does that make any sense absolutely and i think it's a safety issue um you know and sometimes turning you down is sort of a way of testing your safety 
You know, mm-hmm. can I really trust you? Right? Mm-hmm. I'm saying no to something that you want and you're telling me that you'll still love me, you'll still be okay. Is that true? Really? So there yeah. could be an element of that in there as well. You know, yeah. that also speaks to this idea of consent um, that, you know, we talk, especially for neurotypicals, we talk about this enthusiastic consent and especially for people who are neuroatypical, that may occur sometimes, but we have to be more aware that for a lot of people who are uncomfortable with what they're at, what we're asking them uh, uh, to do, they're, well, you said, well, they consented to it. Well, and I say this to guys in particular a lot, mm-hmm. giving, giving in mm-hmm. is not consent. Yeah. Right? Especially when they're feeling pestered and pressured. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so that's where, again, going back to this communication, um, you know, you know, sometimes in a, in, a, in a relationship, we do do things for our partner that we may not really be into, but we always have to maintain that line of, you know, whether it's causing us distress, whether it's mm-hmm. making us really uncomfortable and, you know, all relationships you know, and particularly neurodivergent relationships can learn a thing or two from the world of kink where mm-hmm. using things like safe words or mm-hmm. code words to communicate is really helpful because sometimes to think about how you're going to say something while in the middle of doing it can also be a shutdown for a lot of mm-hmm. people. So yeah. if we talk about this ahead of time, if, you know, as we're doing this, if you're feeling like you're really uncomfortable and want to stop and then, you know, cause saying stop, I'm feeling uncomfortable, maybe too much for people. So right. I tell you what, in a case like that, all you have to do is say pineapple mm-hmm. or, or whatever yeah, that right. word would be. And it's like, we're on the same page. Right? I, uh, I think it's also hugely important that we have these conversations, especially with our uh, uh, neuroatypical partners about sexual versus non-sexual intimate touch. Because mm-hmm. for a lot of people and especially uh, neurodiverse people, there is that sense that any type of touch will automatically be sexual. Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to communicate and talk to our partner about, first of all, the meaning of sex, the meaning of arousal, how it fits in this relationship, kinds of things we're attracted to, uh, and basically give people permission right, mm-hmm. to not be in the same place we are, to not be able to give us something that we may say that we want. Mm-hmm. Right? It, again, that communication uh, communication is so very important. Yeah. Um, experimenting, right? trying different things conversationally, at least, because mm-hmm. I mean, again, I think what's what's also uh, under discussed is the incredibly large percentage of neuroatypical individuals who also have atypical gender and sexual expressions and identities. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I've heard people even say that, you know, that's almost diagnostic, right? Even saying, you know, this, this really hardcore exaggerated sense of social justice and non, 
what we call heteronormative or non-binary or non-typical ways of relating to their own gender and their own sexual attractions is probably almost at this point diagnostic of being mm. neuroatypical. Mm. So yeah. we got to really look at that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's so much room for education. There's so much room for uh, understanding. There's so much room for more conversations about this. And Larry, I can't thank you enough for um, your sharing your expertise, but really having an honest conversation with me about all of this. And I think um, in the future, we need to have more conversations so that neurodiverse couples really feel like they're not alone. Because if, yeah. you're, if you're not part of a support group or you haven't gone to a therapist who's ever worked with other neurodiverse couples and you walk in and you share your story and it's something they've never heard before, you know, you may feel like, oh, my gosh, what am I what am I doing? What what did I get myself into? But the yeah. fact of the matter is I'm doing this because I want to <clears throat> normalize it. I want people to know they aren't alone and that there are folks who will understand what they're going through and can help them and their partners move forward in a way that works for both partners. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so. We have. Can, can I add to about, that? I'm yes, sorry. Can I, can I just please, add a piece to that please. that I think is really very important? Because yes. again, I don't want to let that go. I yeah. want to emphasize what you just said. There, there's, there's, an, and especially having used the, using the word normalize, I think that there is a tendency for neurotypical people to address atypicals in this way, and there's a way of people who may be uh, uh, atypical to feel the pressure being put on them. I think it's yes. very, very important that couples ha- you know, understand they need to learn to define their own relationship. Amen. They need to define it according to what both partners are able or not able to do. I think there's a lot of added stress and pressure for neuroatypicals because there's a sense of you need to change to be more like a neurotypical yeah. instead of how do you be the best you can be How do I be the best I can be? And how can we be the best we can be given what we are both coming in with? Love it. I I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I want to just share, and I think I've shared this on another podcast. I want to share this with our listeners because it was a perfect example of where one of my partners felt that he could not do something. It just, he'd never done it before. And um, there were two things. One, he'd never had sex without a condom ever. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old and, you know, he was my age. And I'm sure there were some things that he did not discuss with me that were reasons for that. And I respected mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I told him he didn't have to wear a condom. And he finally didn't for the first time in his life. And it was very freeing and wonderful. So he was open to it. It took He took his time. I wasn't pressuring him because it wasn't affecting me and it wasn't affecting our sex life. The other thing that happened in that relationship is um, he said to me, I cannot lie in bed after sex. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I asked him, you know, after we'd been together, been together for a little while, I said, could you just lie in bed with me for five minutes, you know, after we had had sex? And he goes, five minutes, that's it. And I'm gone. 
And what happened, Larry, which was so interesting, is we ended up talking and connecting in bed for an hour. Yep. And then yep. the the norm became lying in bed and talking after sex or, right. you know, taking a little nap. Right. That was But something- you were explicit. Yes. You defined what you wanted. You defined that period of time because he was probably, again, I can't sit here and talk, how long do I have to do this? What do I talk about? What if I don't think of anything? So again, there's more performance anxiety. So by saying, defining it, five minutes gave him permission. Yes, exactly. So that's something that I'll probably keep repeating over and over again. And you said it in our conversation, being explicit, asking for exactly what you want. And if you can put a time frame around it, I think it's very helpful for the neurodivergent partner so they know, even if they're looking at their watch or whatever, they're looking at the clock. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we all have opportunities to grow and to explore in areas where we might not feel totally comfortable in the beginning. But when we love our partners or we care about our partners, there is an opportunity for us to stretch ourselves out of our comfort zone and maybe try things that will turn us on, will give us some excitement that we never knew was possible with our body. So Absolutely. I just kind of want to put that out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we're at the end and I would like to know, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to bring up, you know, to close before you share how people can get in touch with you? Is there any other thing? Well, that... <laughs> at, at the risk of bringing, you know, opening up more doors. Okay. A couple of, a couple of points that I would, yeah. I would just sort of make here is, you know, first and especially for professionals, uh, mm-hmm. But also for people in general that, you know, neuroatypical people experience the same range of sexual experiences and desires and issues as neurotypicals. Mm-hmm. There's not anything unique or special except maybe the way they're managed or, or the particular uh, uh, impact that they may have. Right. So mm-hmm. one of the things, especially if somebody has, you know, a more recent aha moment, they just realize, mm-hmm. oh, that's, oh, <laughs> I'm with an atypical. That's what it is. Oh, now it all makes sense. It's important to, again, be open to that and not now start looking at that partner like there's something wrong with them. Right. right? So understanding that whatever issues may be in that relationship with a, an atypical partner or not, these are issues that all people are dealing with. Yes. Uh, I think it's important for people to remember that sex is supposed to be fun. Amen. We're supposed to enjoy this. It's only work if you're getting paid for it. (laughs) So, you know, it's supposed to be something. And it can still be fun, right? (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, But, you know, this, this, we take it so seriously sometimes that what we're doing is before we even get close to thinking about all the things we need to, we've already put so many barriers up and obstacles. So, you know, we need to chill out a little bit and, and, you know, understand this is about having fun and Mm -hmm. enjoying ourselves, uh, hopefully with our partners. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's especially important for uh, neurotypical partners to understand that they're, whatever they're experiencing, whatever is frustrating them or angering them or causing resentment in their relationship, um, they have to under, be able to be open and understand that there may be these underlying issues around body image and self-esteem. Right? That's why this idea, you know, we said before, not taking it personally. 
it may not have anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. It may be a body issue or a self-perception that they have. Mm -hmm. um, the negative sex beliefs and negative experiences that may be behind your partner's uh, expression. Because again, mm -hmm. with a lot of neuroatypicals, what they feel inside and what they express outwardly are not always connected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, again, the understanding that even under good, uh, uh, um, I don't need to say good, even under the, the, the most favorable relationship conditions, a neuroatypical individual uh, may feel performance anxiety. Uh, for women, it may tend more toward being judged as a person. For men, it may be more focused on their sexual performance, mm -hmm. and particularly erections and ejaculation and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then let me just make one final point, and I hope yes. this isn't a, uh, um, you know, a disturbing one, but I think that depending on the relationship, uh, very often, I, from what I see, it's often the neurotypical partner that's often going to carry the bulk of the work and to really, well, everybody involved has to be involved and doing the work and, ha you know, has to come with some degree of um, self-exploration and willing to uh, reevaluate what we think and and what we want. Very often, you know, it is a the neurotypical partner that may have huge adjustments because. And what what I mean by that to explain that is, I think very often the neuroatypical partner will be adjusting their behavior and the feelings associated with their behavior. But very often, neurotypical partners have to adjust their entire worldview. Mm, yeah. And, and I, and again, I don't mean to put that out there as one is more or than the other. There's are, these are, these are tasks that everybody is involved, but I think the neurotypicals often get more caught up in, why can't you see this? Why can't you do this? This doesn't yeah. make sense. How can you do it? And yeah. that, again, that's the worldview. What may right. make sense and what most people should know maybe they don't and they have to learn how to temper those expectations a bit. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And mm. I think, you know, we always have an opportunity to look in the mirror. We always have an opportunity to look and see how can I be the best partner I can be? And that goes for mm -hmm. both, mm -hmm. yes. both for the neurodivergent partner and the non-autistic or neurotypical partner. We, if we're in a relationship with somebody we both have opportunities to grow and learn. And, and, you know, I was married for 30 years. I was with my ex for 32. I decided that um, things probably weren't going to change. And, you know, we moved forward on a divorce. And that may be what works best for folks because one or both partners cannot change or cannot adjust their way of thinking or doing. Mm -hmm. And it may have to do with sex and it may have to do with physical intimacy. And that's fine. But I think one of the things, Larry, that I hear over and over again is one partner, and, and usually it's the neurotypical partner, wanting the neurodivergent partner to change. And the only person... Right. 
The only person who can change is the person themselves. If you push somebody to change and they do it for a short time and they go back to what is comfortable for them, you're going to be angry. You're going to be resentful. So if your partner isn't comfortable changing. Yes. (laughs) And if your partner isn't comfortable changing and you've gone for therapy and you've gone for help and you've been compassionate with each other and whatever, maybe it's not the right relationship for you both, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that's a decision you have to make rather than being resentful and angry and getting sick and all those things that I see, I see so many people experiencing. So Larry, I I know there are going to be folks that are going to want to reach out to you. I know you have a YouTube uh, channel so they Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. hear you outside um, of this particular podcast. So what is the best way for folks to contact you if they want to reach you? Um, well, I can actually reach me if uh, it's easier through YouTube. Uh, I do have this show called Sex Talk with the Siegel Brothers. Okay. Uh, that I do with my wonderful uh, uh, brother and uh, uh, amazing sex therapist, Ricky Siegel. Uh, they can also reach me. I have a, uh, a small nonprofit uh, that I uh, do a lot of work through called Sage Institute for family development. Mm-hmm. And I'll put this in the show notes. Excellent. Right. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll, I'll also give you uh, a direct email. Okay, go ahead. All right. And again, I also use this academically. So, you know, it's, it's prof, P-R-O-F-L-A Siegel. So okay. it's prof-L-A Siegel at gmail.com. Okay, wonderful. Larry, I can't thank you enough. I know this is going to be a an amazing episode for folks to listen to, and I hope that couples will listen to it together because uh, there may so. be some opportunities for them to turn around to each other and have a conversation to stop the podcast and and talk. I, mm-hmm. I that would be great. Yeah, I think the the work you are doing is so wonderful. Not only are you helping, you know, students and individuals and therapists, but you know, the the talk show that you and your your brother have, I'm sure is helping hundreds if not thousands of people all over. So thank you so much for being a guest on the Neurodiverse Love podcast. Uh, really truly my pleasure. It. 